The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not represent or reflect the official policy or position of the Ticket Paycheck Foundation and podcast. All information shared is from personal experiences and does not constitute medical advice. We do not take responsibility for any statements expressed during the podcast. Take a pain check does not endorse any products or services. Any said products or services mentioned on this podcast may not be suitable for you or your condition. Please consult with your physician if you have medical questions, as it may pertain to your condition. Hi everyone, welcome back to this week's episode on Take a Pain Check. I'm so excited to have Dr. Resnick joining me today. So hi Dr. Resnick, can you give me a brief introduction about yourself? Tell me a little bit about your education, your career, your hobbies, and what you've been up to recently. Hi Natasha, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. It's great to be here. I am a pediatric oral and maxillofacial surgeon, or some people might call me a cranio-maxillofacial surgeon, and I imagine we'll talk a lot more about that in the remainder of the podcast. I'm a runner. I, I like reading and boating and spending time with my family. And I just try to spend as much time enjoying my life outside of work as I do at work. And what are your work hours? I have pretty consistent hours. I do mostly elective operations. I do some trauma that keeps me uh, out at nights and weekends, but for the most part, things that I do are scheduled in advance. So I keep relatively typical banker's hours, except I start a little bit early with rounds, usually around 7 a.m. That's great to hear. So what kind of led you to, you know, go into the healthcare field? I have been fascinated with biology and just figuring out how things work since I was a kid. When I was in high school, I spent a lot of time shadowing in doctor's offices and hospitals, and I just really fell in love with medicine and science and biology. Um, I was excited, so excited when I was a kid. I remember that after I shadowed in the hospital and wore some scrubs one day, I, I brought a pair of scrubs home and I would dress up in my scrubs and run errands with them and go to Blockbuster Video, the way that we used to get um movies at home was you actually had to go to a physical place to go get a dvd to put in your dvd player and i would walk in there with my scrubs on i'm sure it looked ridiculous but i was just so excited about being part of this healthcare field and i was always passionate about it and when i grew up um, my dad is a general dentist and when i was in college and starting to figure out my actual path i learned that I really liked working with my hands and building things, which actually is something that's represented a lot in the dental field. And even though um, as a kid, I never really thought of myself going into dentistry as I really started to think about career choices. And I realized that my dad had a wonderful career and really enjoyed what he did and gave us a great lifestyle growing up. Um, and so it all came together and I applied to dental school. And then in dental school, I rotated on all the different specialties of dental medicine. And I always gravitated toward the field I'm in now, oral and maxillofacial surgery, which is a subspecialty of dentistry. And so I went down that pathway and, and that's how I ended up where I am now. And where are you located or where did you do your studies and where did that lead you to where you are at now? Lots of parts to the studies. Um, I went to the University of Pennsylvania for my undergraduate college education uh, in Philadelphia and I stayed there for dental school. So I was uh, at Penn for 
the eight-year plan, but getting two degrees. And then after that, I applied to a program to train in what I do now, oral and maxillofacial surgery, through the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, which is where I still am. And in the process of getting to where I am now, I finished my dental degree at Penn, then I went to the Harvard Medical School to get a medical degree, and then I did my residency at the Mass General Hospital. And as part of that residency process, we spent some time at Boston Children's Hospital, which is the hospital I now work at, uh, of course, doing pediatric surgery. And I really loved that. I just had a passion for dealing with kids and families and some of the problems that arise in the pediatric environment. And, and that inspired me to ultimately come back and do what I do now, which is why I've developed a little subspecialty of oral and maxillofacial surgery in this pediatric environment, which some people call cranio-maxillofacial surgery because it involves all of the structures of the face from the cranium, the head, through the orbits and mid-phase, nasal structures, jaws, all the way through to the airway. Yeah, that's so interesting. My sister actually goes to Penn and she's in the oral medicine residency. So, Oh, go Quakers. <laughs> so yeah and she also aspires to go into like omfs so it's very interesting to hear from your perspective and learn a little bit about your journey but we talked a little bit about your pathway but what is oral maxillofacial surgery in general for people listening they may not have heard about it and what is its relationship to rheumatology great question it's a very complicated specialty which is why the name is so complicated it's hard to um really summarize what oral and maxillofacial surgeons do uh, in just one word. That's why just the just the name of the specialty itself is a mouthful. Oral surgeons, which is what we're often abbreviated to, um, do everything from routine expansion of surgical components of dental care. That's things like removing teeth, um, doing biopsies in the mouth, um, placing dental implants for reconstruction of dental structures and teeth, for example. Uh, those are very common components of what an oral and maxillofacial surgeon would do. Um, and then there is a whole other side to oral and maxillofacial surgery, and often these are combined in the same practice to varying degrees, uh, dealing with pathology like cysts and tumors and degenerative joint diseases, for example, and that's where this might intersect with rheumatology in this scenario. So oral and maxillofacial surgeons also deal with traumatic situations, um, bone breakages around the facial skeleton and the repair thereof, and also lots of congenital anomalies, particularly in the pediatric environment that I work in. Uh, I manage a lot of growth abnormalities, things in the line of cleft lip and palate and abnormalities of jaw and facial growth. So there are just so many things that an oral and maxillofacial surgeon can do. Uh, and that's what makes the specialty so exciting and different for every person that does it. Yeah, for sure. I also just saw the background in the place that you're located in right now. <laughs> yes, my home office uh, has lots of examples of patients that I've managed with facial abnormalities. And there's quite a lot of 3D printing and virtual planning uh, that goes into the type of surgery that I do. And so that generates uh, things that go on the shelves like that. 
No, that's really interesting. So can you talk a little bit about your experience in medical school and residency and what was the hardest part of kind of getting through that? Yeah, I generally had a really positive experience in my training. I was constantly seeing different environments that I was inspired by and also learning about components of medicine and and hospital basis that I wasn't as interested in. Uh, and that really helped me hone my ultimate career to try to encompass all the things that I really like about this field. Um, you know, it's, it's grueling to some degree. It's a lot of hours, it's a lot of work, um, a lot of dedication of many years of study uh, to go through any long type of training process. Um, but I think it's all worth it in the end because it, um, really creates a tremendous responsibility and privilege to take care of patients and families. Can you talk a little bit about maybe an eye-opening experience that you had maybe in residency or any particular thing that really fascinated you? Sure. You know, what really drew me into going to the pediatric environment that I currently work in is the first time that I did my rotation as a resident over at Boston Children's Hospital. And I showed up on the Friday afternoon craniofacial clinic, which is where a team of doctors from several different specialties all get together in one room and discuss complex patients with congenital facial differences. And typically the process for a correction of these problems involves many stages with a myriad of operations by different teams and is really quite complex. And it's unbelievably fascinating to see a team of experienced surgeons and other clinicians discuss these processes amongst themselves, amongst the group, and then also with the patients and families. And just the way that this, these teams can be adept at describing these super complicated concepts to a young child sometimes, and they're not as fully informed families, and then turning around and turning that into technical discussions about how we might change this or this to achieve this goal, and staging it out throughout an entire lifespan, some things that happen in early childhood and then later and, and older, and then following these patients and families through their whole journey uh, and really seeing patients that are now in their 20s that had this process started when they were infants and becoming a part of their families. I mean, now I realize that incredibly as I get Christmas cards from many of my patients uh, years after I've treated them. And, and in some ways, they feel that I'm a part of their family, and I feel a part of theirs. And I, I really enjoyed that interplay, uh, which is what drew me into the pediatric world. Yeah, it sounds so interesting, especially because I think you're also building a community and you're making patients very comfortable to be able to like talk to their doctors. Oftentimes patients are very afraid to talk to their physicians about what's going on in their healthcare. I, I hope to do that. I try hard and I, and I know um, our entire group in a pediatric institution really focuses on trying to make patients and families who are going through sometimes very difficult processes feel comfortable and and well cared for. So after residency, you went into private practice in New York. Can you talk a little bit about what private practice is and what you actually did and talk about your time there? I did, that's right. And um, not every private practice is the same, um, but the average 
oral and maxillofacial surgery private practice um, is an environment that deals primarily with the outpatient components of this field. So some of the things that I mentioned earlier on uh, regarding to removal of teeth like wisdom teeth and other uh, teeth that need to be removed as part of an overall dental maintenance and health plan, uh, replacement of missing bone and tooth structures with bone grafting and dental implants and, and those kinds of things uh, are the primary things that are dealt with in an outpatient um, private practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. And so that's what I did for about two and a half years. And I really enjoyed it. It's a wonderful service to the community. You really feel like a, a part of the community. And, you know, oftentimes the private practice as the one that I was in uh, did does a lot of sponsorship of local components of the community for general community building and and really just a part of of that environment and that's really lovely and you get to know a lot of the other providers in the community and uh, get to manage a lot of patients and families and so it's a wonderful experience at the time i always felt like i was missing something uh, in my own career because i was always drawn back into the more academic like environment I, I really enjoyed some of the research that i had done as a um, resident and trainee and some of the bigger operations that i was able to do in a more hospital-based environment that are tough to do in the average private practice uh, not because of a lack of surgeon expertise, but because of the environment necessary to take care of complicated patients. It takes much more uh, than just a good surgeon to take care of a complicated patient. After that kind of experience, you did decide to go into academic surgery afterwards. Would you be able to explain what that is and why you made that decision? Yeah, so academic medicine um, really gives me the opportunity to do everything that I dreamt of doing in my career. I can do major and often life-changing operations because I have the environment and support to, to do those kinds of things. I can do research studies to study my processes and outcomes and improve my own practice as I learn more about my outcomes and then share that with others and hopefully improve other people's practices as well uh, through the process of publishing and presenting research. I also get to be an educator. I get to work with students and uh, I'm the director of our um, oral and maxillofacial surgery, craniofacial surgery fellowship. So we have a, a fellow, which means someone that has completed the oral and maxillofacial surgery residency program already. So they're a full-fledged oral and maxillofacial surgeon, but they're seeking additional treatment doing specific pediatric types of procedures like I do. And so we have a fellow around uh, that I also get to teach and learn from, quite honestly. Um, and so that interplay of, of education where I, I teach, but I also am always learning uh, is, is super exciting to me. And I also get to work in a you know really wonderful hospital system and part of an amazing medical school at Harvard Medical School where I'm constantly surrounded by incredibly smart and inspired people and just being in that environment where everybody around you is functioning at such a high level, it's, it's inspiring. Hopefully it helps me be better at what I do. 
Yeah, I think just in general situations, having like-minded individuals around you and kind of sharing the same passion definitely also makes you more motivated to continue what you're doing because you're constantly in an environment that you love being in. But you do so much. We've talked a lot about your career and you've just been doing more and more studying, more learning, more teaching. And it's not done yet because I have more questions about what you do. You are also an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and Harvard Dental School. What is the most rewarding part about this like education aspect? I know you kind of mentioned that you work with individuals that teach you as well as you teach them a lot, but would you be able to kind of elaborate what your day-to-day -day life is or why is it so important that you continue to kind of talk to young medical students? I think being around an environment of trainees is inspiring to everybody. I get the privilege to work with uh, dental students and medical students and residents and fellows, so many different levels of training. And, you know, each level has its own um, inspiration. Some people are already doing the types of things that I do in my career and so are very focused on technical details and selection of the right patient for the particular operation that I might do kind of thing. And, and that's great to be able to teach the, the tricks that I've learned so far in my career and really have a high-level discussion with somebody that is helping you know me think through some complicated processes as well and then the total other side of it where i might uh, work in a classroom setting or a lecture type of environment with a, an early stage dental student or medical student who hasn't even decided on the trajectory of their career yet and, and it's really interesting to hear their perspectives on what interests them and what types of things draw them into their future career and give them my perspective so I think just being around an academic environment is oh, keeps things interesting. Would you be able to give me a rundown of what it's like to spend a day in your shoes? Sure, I can try. My day is a little different each day, um, which is one of the things that I love about my career is that it's uh, always new and exciting. Um, I spend a, a couple of days a week uh, seeing outpatients. That's patients that come to see me in an outpatient office setting, which is within the hospital that I work in. Um, and that's the time to do consultations with new patients to talk about potential uh, surgical needs or um, preoperative visits to prepare patients for an upcoming procedure or postoperative visits to check in on patients who have already had operations and make sure that they're progressing as expected. Um, and I also do lots of small outpatient procedures in that uh, clinical environment. So I do that kind of thing a couple of days a week. And, and those are, you know, regular business day type days. I get there at 7.30 and start seeing patients and have a nice team to work with all day long and, and usually uh, end at a reasonable hour at the end of the day. And then I have uh, operating room days a couple of days a week. And that's uh, the time to do the operations that have been prepared for uh, during those consultation visits. And um, those days are exciting, but they're also long and uh, sometimes complicated and stressful, um, but also incredibly rewarding. That's the day to really accomplish everything that I do in my career. And um, so I wouldn't want to do that every single day. That might be a little too stressful. Um, but it's certainly exciting to be able to do that a couple of days a week. Um, and those days are a little longer. They start a little earlier and end at a variable time because 
an operation takes as long as an operation takes. Um, but uh, but that's the the real you know gold of the of my career is that time in the operating room. You're a very busy person. You're doing a lot of things, but you also know how to, like we mentioned in the beginning of the episode, make sure that you do have time for your family. You do things that you still love to do. So I'm wondering how do you actually keep that work life balance? I know a lot of physicians that I've talked to on my podcast episodes say that they actually turn their phone off on the weekends because they just need to kind of detach and they know that their residents or other people in this clinical setting that are working so they don't have to worry too much. So I'm wondering, do you do anything similar to kind of you know, detach from work because you have a lot of work to do. And I kind of talked also about like how I have a very big tendency to constantly check my email no matter what. And so what they do is they actually put like a time limit on their phone. And so I'm wondering, do you do anything like that to uh, maintain that work-life balance? I'm sorry, Natasha, I may not be your best example of a a work-life balance expert. Uh, I'm not sure that I can give tips that uh, would be useful to your audience here because I could probably use those tips. Um, I work in a unique environment where I'm part of a very niche surgical specialty. There are are 12 surgeons in my department uh, in my hospital, um, but there are fewer that do the types of things that I do and specifically. And in some of the types of things that I manage, I'm the only one in the hospital that does that kind of thing. So um, it's hard for me to really get off the grid entirely. Um, Certainly for urgent matters and, you know, things that uh, require all, all day and night type of care, there's lots of support within the hospital system. So I'm not getting every phone call about every problem uh, that arises within my group. And we have lots of wonderful um, residents, fellows, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and other members of the hospital team that help manage uh, things to take some stuff off my plate. But um, I can't say that I get away from email or phone too frequently. I just try to manage it as part of my daily life. But I do prioritize a lot of time with my family. And I, I think that generally speaking, I somehow managed to pull off a pretty reasonable work-life balance. I try to make dinner for the family uh, most, uh, if not all nights, and you know, try to be present for school events and sporting events and all the things that I think are important to the kids and the family. And I think it's going to be unique and different for everyone and especially in different like specialties. It varies the amount of work you have to do, the hours you have to do it, the type of specialty. Like you just mentioned, the staff is quite different in the way that you work. So some of them do similar things as you, but other people have different focuses or different other tasks. So it's not going to be the same for everyone. And I think that's just important to note that for someone, you know, who is interested or passionate about this career type of huge part of your job is ensuring that also your patients are healthy how do you keep a healthy lifestyle yourself uh well i try to exercise and eat reasonably well i became a runner over the last little while last few years and uh trained for a marathon ran a marathon last year um and i just try to stay fit and not um indulge too much in uh all of the junk food around the hospital oh yeah i know my sister told me that like for example in penn they have certain days where they feed them so much food (laughs) it's just like lying everywhere in the hospital that's true there is uh, often a lot of food available as a trainee and uh, it's hard to resist sometimes 
For sure. So let's jump right in into your initiatives and interests and research interests. You were on this podcast because OMFS does have a strong connection to also the rheumatology field. And so what is your main interest in your field of study? Well, Natasha, I have a few different uh, interests in my field, but I think the one that's most relevant to uh, your group is about TMJ arthritis. Temporomandibular joint or jaw joint arthritis is a very common component of juvenile idiopathic arthritis. And so that's where my field and the pediatric rheumatology field really intersect. And I think the recognition of temporomandibular joint or TMJ arthritis over the last decade or more has really exploded um, early on in the management of juvenile idiopathic arthritis. The TMJ was not very much considered, but as we've learned more about it, it turns out that it's involved in the disease process very frequently. And while there's no clear number on how frequently. It's probably more than half of patients that have some involvement of at least one temporomandibular joint when they have this diagnosis of juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Some people won't know about it until late in the disease. It's often hard to recognize early on. And that's why having rheumatologists and other providers be aware of it is so critical because if we're not looking for it, we won't find it. And later on, there will be a price to pay for that. Can you elaborate a little bit about TMJ arthritis? So talking about what it is and how this actually impacts patients. I I know about it because a lot of my friends or people on the podcast have talked about it. But for people who don't know what TMJ arthritis and how that can impact a patient with JIA. Would you be able to explain what are some of the limitations they might have and how that impacts them? Sure. Of course, uh, a patient with JIA may have uh, involvement of many different uh, variable joints, and the TMJ is one of those. Uh, and there are two TMJs, and it's very common for both to be involved although it does occur that only one is involved in some people as well. And early involvement of a temporomandibular joint, a TMJ by arthritis, is often asymptomatic. Not always. There are some patients that have pain or functional trouble early in the disease process, but that's rare. Most people that have an involved temporomandibular joint don't even know about it and may experience some subtle changes to their jaw and facial structure over time that are really hard to recognize until they're pretty advanced. It's common that someone with TMJ arthritis will develop a facial deformity, a jaw positional change, a bite change, a inability to open the mouth widely and chew effectively, um, sometimes even some trouble with breathing in airway um, patency because the jaw gets smaller and that makes the airway smaller and it makes it harder to breathe and easier to collapse that small airway. So there are lots of downstream effects of TMJ arthritis, but often it takes a long time for those to develop. And, and that's why, as I mentioned earlier, it's so critical to have TMJ arthritis on the radar in someone that's susceptible, meaning someone with JA and 
the potential to have it. Um, so that if we see any sign of an early developing TMJ problem before it's even on the radar of the patient or family, perhaps, we have an opportunity to intervene to try to decrease the likelihood of it heading down the pathway to some of those bigger problems down the line. And so when someone does have TMJ arthritis, what are the treatment options that are kind of given to them? Yeah, that's a, a great question and a complicated one because we're still learning the answer to that. Uh, and again, that's one of the reasons I love this field is because we know a lot, but we also don't know a lot. And there's so much opportunity for more research and more understanding of this really complicated disease. And so what we know now is that much of the TMJ arthritis will respond to some similar immunomodulating treatment that a lot of other joints respond to in JIA, with some exceptions. It is certainly seen in many scenarios that the TMJ is a little recalcitrant, a little more difficult to treat using um, the typical immunomodulating pathways that are used in other patients with JIA. Uh, for example, methotrexate, very commonly used first-line treatment um, for JIA, often does not have much effect in the temporomandibular joints. That's not always the case, but it's less likely uh, to be the, um, the answer in someone with advanced TMJ arthritis. And so other medication classes um, are often necessary in treating a patient with TMJ arthritis, whereas that escalation may not have been indicated if the TMJs weren't involved. So certainly a thoughtful consideration of the systemic medication treatment is needed when we identify TMJ arthritis. And so that's where a very close collaboration between a rheumatologist and someone that's watching that jaw joint real closely, which is often someone in my field, an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, although in some parts of the country and world is actually an orthodontist that is very involved in this. So there's some variability in the specialty uh, that manages this, but certainly a multidisciplinary lens of evaluating TMJ arthritis in the context of overall JIA is really critical. And then in people that have some of the downstream effects of TMJ arthritis, pain and dysfunction and trouble with alignment of the jaw and bite and airway, more advanced treatment is sometimes necessary. And that's a lot of what I do. We do sometimes use some steroid injections into the jaw joints, just as is common in many other joints. Um, but there are a lot of concerns about the use of steroids in growing jaw joints in particular. Um, there is a suggestion that the use of steroids in a growing jaw joint may have an inhibitory growth effect on that joint that is, of course, supposed to continue to grow during that timeline. And so I use steroid injections more sparingly nowadays than prior to that suggestion arose. Um, but there may still be a role for some steroid injections, especially in more skeletally mature older patients who are still having pain. So that's one piece of it. Um, but other types of operations may also be necessary. 
sometimes arthroscopic procedures using a video scope to go into the jaw joint and assess what's happening in that joint, uh, maybe take biopsies of the joint, maybe reposition components of the joint uh, is sometimes helpful. And in patients with more advanced disease processes, uh, often joint reconstruction is necessary. And, and that's a lot of what I do is to reconstruct a joint that's been very severely destroyed by an arthritic process. And it's a wonderful operation uh, for somebody that needs it. And it really gets somebody that's had a bad uh, process from their jaw arthritis into a much better scenario. And so it's very rewarding in that way. But honestly, I'd like to do less of that operation um, because I think there's more room to prevent that process from occurring in the first place. And in some ways, having to do a joint reconstruction means that somewhere along the way, we failed to stop that joint from degenerating to the point where it needs to be reconstructed. So I think the real um, potential benefit in our research endeavors is in finding better ways to stop people from getting that far down the pathway. Yeah, that's honestly very nice to hear coming from someone who is in the field that, you know, you are also trying with other colleagues and researching about how the last kind of step or case scenario could be prevented. And so I think it's important for people to know that there are a lot of physicians that are working towards this goal, because a lot of the times like patients don't really understand that or they just think you know they're out to get me they want to make me get the surgery but really there's just so much research that's being done and it takes a long time to, for it to actually be published in journals and to actually be put into practice yeah that's a great point natasha i think it's really important for people to know that for the most part physicians that deal in these uh, very unique problems are really just trying to improve the lives of our patients. And, and we may have a particular technique to use. I use surgery as because I'm a surgeon, but that doesn't mean that I want patients to need surgery if there's a way to prevent it. I think really the ultimate goal of all of our teams is to improve the lives of patients as much as we can uh, by the means that are available to us. Have you ever had a patient that had like TMJ problems, but were not diagnosed with JIA and only diagnosed with JIA after? Or does it usually work that the patient has JIA and then they eventually develop the TMJ problems? In fact, there is an emerging body of evidence about the concept of either TMJ only or TMJ first arthritis. Uh, and it's not common, but I definitely see it. I have a series of patients that I'm actually studying now on this topic uh, that presented with a primary jaw joint problem. Um, they were not known to have arthritis, and it's still unclear if they have arthritis. I often will evaluate them with some fancy tests like a contrast enhanced MRI, which helps to show if there's an inflammatory process in that jaw joint. And we're still learning about what that means. I used to strongly believe that if the jaw joint had a lot of inflammation as evidenced by a lot of this contrast agent that's injected showing up into the jaw joint on these images, that that indicated arthritis. But I'm not sure that that's so clear. Certainly, 
having inflammation is inherent to arthritis, but it's also inherent to joint dysfunction too. So um, some of the tests that we used to think were were clear markers for this disease, it's not clear if they if they truly are. We talked a little bit about the different characteristics or features when it comes to the TMJ being impacted or what are the things that patients can't do, but what should patients actually look out for? Because I know sometimes like patients don't know how to articulate how they're feeling or what's kind of going on in their body. And sometimes they're confused when they have multiple chronic illnesses and they don't know what's happening where. So what is something that they should maybe look out for that might be sort of alarming or something that kind of makes them go to the physician and be like, hey, I am in so much pain. Like, how does that work? So what should patients look out for? Yeah, that's a great question. The signs of early TMJ arthritis are very hard to spot. Um, particularly because they often occur at an age where kids are too young to recognize them themselves, and they may not be so obvious to the parents to put them on the radar. Um, In the same way that long bone and joints around the long bones and legs are often recognized as problematic by changes in behavior, like limping, for example, Um, that's maybe recognized by a parent rather than by the child, his or herself. Uh, It may be similar with early jaw joint arthritis, oftentimes a change in diet, a child just deciding to avoid harder foods, larger foods that require more mouth opening and lots of chewing may be a sign that something's going on in their jaw joint that's not functioning as well or it's causing some pain with function. Uh, Even though, you know, a four or five or six-year-old may not complain to their parent about jaw pain. So being attuned to those kinds of changes is, is helpful. Now, it's really hard to have those concepts on the radar when there's not an underlying diagnosis. And that's why the TMJ only or TMJ first type of arthritic presentation is really difficult to spot and to manage. Maybe a little bit easier in patients that already are known to have a diagnosis of JIA then watching for changes that occur around the jaw and facial structures is a little bit more um, appropriate because it's on the radar already. But certainly those types of functional changes to chewing and food choices are often the earliest signs. It sounds that we need more awareness about TMJ arthritis and what it is even for patients and also just generally for anyone in the healthcare field so they have more awareness of, you know, this is something that could happen to patients, but also how can the patients kind of learn about what it is. I've had a lot of patients on my podcast have problems with their TMJ, but they mentioned how they had no idea what it was. Some of them had to have jaw surgery and they were terrified and they just had no knowledge of how oral health also and rheumatology are linked together or how dentistry and rheumatology can be linked together. So it's just so nice to hear from a perspective of someone who works in that field that can kind of bring some of these tips to the table. Absolutely. And there has been a wonderful trend toward improved awareness and education of the relationship between the temporum dibbler joint and other arthritic joints in JIA over the last decade or more. Um, It is something that that was at one time referred to as the forgotten joint of JIA. 
Uh, and that's no, no longer the case. It's really um, on the radar in pediatric rheumatology meetings and journals and research initiatives. Um, so there's a lot of more room for improvement in this space for sure, um, but the TMJ is no longer forgotten in the JIA process like it once was. That's so great to hear. So your publication in 2022 titled Management of Orofacial Manifestations of Juvenile Idiopathic Arthritis Interdisciplinary Consensus-Based Recommendations. So after conducting this study, how are these suggestions actually implemented on a global basis? That's a wonderful question. I, I am still trying with this group called the TMJAW group, which is an incredible uh, clinical and research collaboration of many multidisciplinary uh, physicians and dentists around the world to get the word out there on this topic. And there are some institutions and some regions of the world that are much more on top of this than others, uh, but it's certainly not universally accepted and understood. Um, so we're still working toward that goal. And in fact, we have a meeting of this TM jaw group coming up in Norway in just a few short months, uh, where we'll continue that collaboration to try to increase awareness in parts of the countries and world that don't really recognize this yet. But uh, I, I think that that paper that you mentioned was hopefully a really good step in the right direction of trying to get a series of dentists and surgeons together to come up with some agreed upon standards um, so that we can get the message out in a way that will be uh, more standardized throughout the world. Is this available online? Can people access this? It's published in a, and available through the journal website. Okay, perfect. So I'll link that down below if anyone's interested in taking a read. I usually end off the podcast episode with an advice segment. So what advice would you give to your younger self? Well, that's a tough question, Natasha. I would encourage my previous self and others uh, like me to stay curious and really try to think through potential pathways to solve difficult problems and, and not be scared off by uh, the lack of a clear answer or pathway. Uh, I think that's what we're trying to do in this field of temporomandibular joint arthritis is to tackle almost impossible questions um, that don't have clear answers. And I don't know if in my lifetime we'll come up with all of the answers we want, but uh, it's really about perseverance and curiosity to keep trying. Thank you so much, Dr. Resnick, for joining me on today's episode on Take a Pain Check. We started the episode off by talking about your interest in healthcare, which progressed into your experience in medical school and residency. And then we discussed a little bit about what you did in private practice and then why you decided to switch out into, you know, the academic field. And then you talked a little bit about your interest in educating the younger generation, with lectures at Harvard Medical School and Harvard Dental School. We dived into parts of your work life as well as your personal life, including a day in the life, even though it's different every single day. And finally, we moved on to discussing your passion for research. And we just really focused on the TMJ related arthritis passion um, and research that is upcoming, as well as how to diagnose, treat and seek 
any sort of help related to TMJ. And then we finally discussed your 2022 publication about managing orofacial JIA. So everyone like, comment, subscribe, check out the publication that I will link down below and I'll see everyone in two weeks on Take a Pain Check. Thank you very much, Natasha, for the opportunity to speak with you and with your audience. And uh, I really uh, hope that some of what we discussed is helpful to your uh, podcast audience. And I'm very inspired by people like you who create podcasts to try to uh, increase awareness of some of these problems and get the word out on these things and give support to people that are dealing with really difficult problems in their lives like this. So thank you very much for doing it. Thank you so much. Bye.